0: we are in a series in the book of Galatians entitled One New Family, okay? There's a slide for the series and the title of today's teaching, here it is, Scripture and the Authority of Jesus. This is a tiny topic, very small and not controversial, but this is where Paul goes, authority. He goes for the authority question in our text today. So this is where we're going, recognizing and respecting authority. Specifically, the authority of Jesus that comes to us through the Bible. And our text today is Galatians 1.10 through 2.10. Normally, we read through the whole thing. Uh, We're going to walk through the 25 verses in a few minutes. And in these verses, Paul doesn't just defend his authority. Like, I have the authority to say this. Listen to me. No, he, he goes further than that. And he actually puts his own authority at the same level as Jesus's. Did you know this? Paul sees his own voice as carrying the same authority of Jesus' voice in his writings. Um, It's very important for Christians to understand. So before we read it, let's remember where we're at in the story. Galatia. The Galatian church is breaking apart and Paul, his goal is to keep the family together. (laughs) This church is getting broken up in tribes, tribalism, and they're getting confused by false authorities. Other voices are coming in and saying, hey, hey, Gentile Christians have to become Jews in order to belong. They have to get circumcised, adult circumcision, no fun. They have to do that, though, in order to belong in the church. That's what these these false teachers were saying, and it's causing tribes, because some were agreeing with them, and some were like, no, Paul's right. And, And so Paul's like, no, 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 not on my watch, we will not divide over this false gospel. The idea you, that you have to behave in order to belong, that's a false gospel. Uh, and so now in our text, Paul's defending his authority. He's saying, don't listen to those other voices. They're spreading a gospel of division. And I have the true gospel, Paul's saying. He's saying, "I'm not only do I have the true gospel, but I have Jesus's own authority, is what Paul says. Um, he, he's saying, my, "My written words are the authorized version of Jesus' words." So it's a wild claim, isn't it? Especially in our anti-authoritarian culture right now, it just doesn't rub us the right way. In other words, to submit to Paul's authority is to submit to Jesus'. This is the case Paul's making in 25 verses, so that's what we're going to talk about today. The Bible's authority. Because this is where Paul goes. So uh, you're at Galatians 1. We're going to zoom in on Paul's defense. And then we're going to end by zooming out on this wild and crazy idea that 21st century Western people, thinking people, actually submit to a really, really old book. That's really weird uh, today. And so we're going to zoom out on that and, and ask ourselves, why do we do this? So here we go. Galatians 1, starting in verse 10. Here's Paul's defense of his authority. He says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, apparently people are calling Paul a a people pleaser. Why? We think it's because Paul's giving them the gospel, which is really good news and people like it. (laughs) People are happy to hear that Jesus loves them and accepts them based on faith alone. They lo- and, and, and Paul's saying Gentiles don't have to become Jews to belong. Remember the teaching was that you have to become. You have to change. Classic tribal, you have to become like us to belong with us. And, and so people are accusing Paul, you're such a people pleaser. You're getting rid of circumcision. Why are you bringing down the bar, bro? Like, you're getting rid of the hard practices, you know. And so and he, they, they're thinking he's, Paul's making this easy on the Gentiles. He's people pleaser. And so Paul's response is actually kind of, yeah, like I'm trying to win everyone. That's why he says, am I trying to win God? I already have God. I'm trying to win people, not please people. I'm not man-pleasing. I am people. I'm a winner of, to use Jesus' language, a fisher of humans, a fisher of men. And so this is where Paul starts defending his authority. Here it is, starting in verse 11. He says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters... That the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's quite a claim. I didn't get this from a mere human. Jesus appeared to me and gave it to me himself in person. Verse 13, for you've heard of my previous way of life in Jerusalem, how intensely I persecuted the church of God, tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, when God was pleased to reveal his son in me, there's that word again, Jesus is coming to Paul. He's appearing and revealing the gospel to Paul. So why? So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. When I told them that, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. See what Paul's doing. Paul's like, driving home the point, this didn't come from another person. I am the authority here. Because I am on par with Jesus in my writings here. Not as... A co-messiah or a co-savior or a co-god, but as someone who shares authority uniquely. In verse 17, he's like, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to the desert. I went to Arabia. See, he's drilling this point. I didn't, I didn't get this from Peter first or James first or John or Matthew or Luke. I didn't get this from any of those guys first. I got it from like Jesus in the desert. Later, I returned to Damascus. So he keeps building his case. He keeps building this case. Like I received this from Jesus. And he's like, unlike those divisive false teachers who are trying to tell you that you have to behave to belong. So he's building his authority. And then verse 18, he continues. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, who's another name for Peter. Peter had a lot of names, Simon and Peter, and and one of them was Cephas. But how long did Paul stay with Cephas in verse 18? He's very clear. It was just two weeks. (laughs) I only spent time with Peter for like two weeks and a day, but I was with Jesus for 14 years in the desert. I didn't get this from Peter only. I didn't even get it from Peter first. Verse 19, he's like, I didn't see anyone else. None of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, hey, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's all they knew about me is that I was transformed by this Jesus and they praise God because of me. So Paul's like I've I hope you get this. He's beating the drum just like I am right now in front of you. I've only been influenced by Jesus only 15 days with Paul uh, Peter the legend. All the rest of my time I'm with Jesus himself for 14 years. Look at the next slide. Here's the rest of the text. He's like then after 14 years most likely with the risen Christ, in a unique way. Unique to any other people. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. So he's making a case now about Titus the Gentile. Titus is not a Jew. He's like, by the way, I brought Titus. Guess what happened to him when I preached the gospel? He's, verse two, he says, I went in response to a revelation more from Jesus, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I wasn't running and had not been running my race in vain. So he eventually did go to Peter and John and James and Matthew. He eventually did go to them just to cross check. You know, let's make sure we're sharing the same notes here that we're all the same on the same gospel page. And guess what? They were 100%, there was no disagreement, no division. And look at what happened with the Greek Gentile Titus. Verse three, yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, you guys. Your gospel that Gentiles have to change in order to belong, that's a different gospel. Because when all the apostles got together, they didn't make Titus change. Your gospel's wrong, you guys, he's saying. You you divisive people are preaching a false gospel that is requiring something other than faith in Christ in order to belong at the table. And verse four, he says, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here it is, unity, amongst the apostles who have the authority of Jesus, any other gospel that you have to behave like us or like this tribe or like Republicans or Democrats or whatever, any other gospel that you have to behave like us in order to belong is a different gospel. Yeah. And he's making this case powerfully. And, and, he, and he's not only saying this is the gospel, but he's saying, that I carry Jesus' authority in my voice as I say this, Paul says. And then the final chunk of text. Here it is. Verse 6 of chapter 2. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference for me. <laughs> so he's, he's like, I'm right up there with them. Right? God does not show favoritism amongst the apostles. And they added nothing to my message. He had the full gospel. They didn't, you know, like, when I, when I preach a sermon, our sermon crafting team shares notes. Like, I'll write the manuscript, then I'll send it to the elders, and they'll change things. That's how we make teachings here. We have a sermon preaching te- crafting team, and they'll, they'll offer changes, and we'll debate, and then I'll make the changes. Um, and they add a lot to my messages. <laughs> so, but, but with the apostles, that was not the case. There was a unique authority and a spiritual binding between them, uh, where there was no tweaking there was no changing. There was no editing needed in their gospel. Um, that's what Paul is saying here. Actually, on the contrary, verse 7, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised Gentiles, just like Peter to the Jews, circumcised. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, the Jews, that same God was at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James and Cephas, James and Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, guess what they did? They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. It's like a thumbs up. Like you are a OK approved, 100% apostle. They gave me the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, the circumcised. Look at, la- look at the last verse. I love that he ends with this. All they asked. This is the one thing they did add to the conversation. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. Which, by the way, is the very thing I was pumped about, he says we were on the same page. We were, we were finishing each other's sentences. We're talking about the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for all ethnicities and tribes. We were finishing each other's sentences, thinking each other's thoughts. Even when they're like, by the way, if, if you're gonna put this gospel on display in your life, make sure it comes out as remembering the poor. He's like, the poor? Yep, I knew it. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's the very thing I was eager to do. This, this is proof that the gospel is alive in a community. And this is why we brought up Matt Persley and Ariel Dorch and the For the Children leaders, uh, Larry and his wife. And, and this is why we're calling all of Park Hill Church to continue. Can you put that slide back up of that text? To continue to remember the poor. We should continue. That's the one thing the apostles ask. If we have the gospel, that's what it'll look like. Paul's like, your your message is perfect. You have the gospel. We got nothing to add except one thing. Your gospel is incomplete unless you continue to remember the poor tangibly. And Paul's like, I thought you'd never ask. I'm in. Is that, so let me ask you, as we've just heard a beautiful announcement, watched an incredible video about remembering some of the most vulnerable people in our county. Kids in the foster care system and their families, their host families. We're remembering them. What are going to be the receipts of you remembering them by the end of 2022? The receipts of the gospel at work in your life. Are you eager? Can you say, oh man, this is the one thing I've been eager to do all along. This is the fruit of the gospel. That's what the gospel heart says. Um, Is this something you can say for yourself? Are you eager to remember the poor? Do you have a system for this in your life, for remembering the poor? If you, I'll say, according to Paul, if you aren't tangibly, consistently remembering the poor, then um, you're living an incomplete gospel. So what's the evidence of this in your life? So on behalf of the elders of the church, I'd love to point out three ways we've opened the door for you to remember the poor. Uh, number one is a consistent rhythm of giving to Park Hill Church. Like I said, in 2021, 17% of every dollar went straight out to church planting in other communities that will then bless the poor there, and justice work directly to the poor. And thirsty people in communities in uh, Uganda and Burkina Faso that don't have wells, we we are digging them now based on something like $30,000 given for the poor. We are remembering them. Their consistent rhythm of giving to Park Hill Church. And then you can You can actually give directly to the other two. Walk for water in May. We're going to do it again, just like we did in September. We're going to walk and dig more wells. And then the third way, you just heard about it, Royal Family Kids Camp coming in June. Either remember them financially by giving 25 bucks a month or remember them in an embodied way and sign up to be present in their lives for a week and leave like a, you know, inside out Pixar, leave like a core memory. For them, this just drops into their soul that they'll draw from their identity as loved children. They'll draw that identity from your experience with them over the course of the next four decades of their life. Remember the poor. So right there, those are concrete ways. We get to live out this gospel. It's the one thing the apostles asked. The one thing. So I would ask you how you're doing the one thing. So there it is. That's zooming in on Paul's defense. You just heard Paul's defense of his own authority. Not just that what he says is true, but that what he says has Jesus's weight behind it. Um, So what does this all mean? Let's zoom out. And now see San Diego County line. See where you live. See where you go to school. You know, picture it. Picture all the places, your spaces, your gym you go to or whatever. How does this apply to your life? How does the Bible govern and and exist as an authority over your body and mind and soul? How do you even think about that? And maybe you're not a Christian here, in which case, welcome. And it might be weird to you to hear that that we submit to a book that's thousands of years old. Um, So Paul, this is what Paul intends. All Christians everywhere forever to read his words as though they carry Jesus's authority over Jesus' followers. And for for 2,000 years, you guys, this is what the church is, this is what we've believed, that Paul and Peter and John and Matthew, Luke, all the rest of the New Testament authors, Jesus' followers are expected to read them like authorized Jesus spokespeople. Jesus never wrote a book of the Bible. The only thing we have record of him writing is words in the sand, and we don't even know what those are. But Jesus did authorize tons of writing and gave his, gave his seal of authority to it. And it's, it's these New Testament documents. And then he brought in the Old Testament and said, these things pointed to me too. They all have my authority. So I can imagine what you're all thinking right now. This is where we go to the elephant in the room. There's a, is an obvious glaring difficulty that we have. Maybe you felt it. You're, you have like questions already. Ever since I talked about authority, the, said the word, you're like, yeah, but... Um, because authority is not the most popular topic, especially with all the authority abuse that we've seen, right? Spiritual abuse, authority abuse, all mixed in with sexual abuse in the church. We've seen these things. We know we see them come through our news feeds. Um, and really, we, we just don't love authority, because we live in what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, he calls this the age of authenticity. We've moved from authority outside of us to authenticity is the new authority inside us, right? The ultimate authority is whatever, whatever we feel is most authentic to me. And this is very new. Up until just one or two hundred years ago, basically all humans lived by what outside authority structures tell us to do. Like whether it's God or the Bible or whatever tradition Up until a couple centuries ago, it was just assumed that's how you live. You live under something outside of you. But now, in the West, we live from what our internal sense of desire or self tells us feels best. This is just the assumption now, right? To justify our authenticity, worship, our culture elevates experience over evidence, And we do this mostly subconsciously. We just assume this is how the world world works. Self is the center of reality, and God's somewhere on the distant edges of memory. And we're comfortable with this. Have you noticed, you guys, I don't know if you how many friends you have that are far from God. Uh, Some of us have more than others. Friends that are just far from God. Have you noticed people don't care as much if you have evidence? (laughs) You know what I mean? So let's talk about the evidence for the Bible or the evidence that God created. Or People like are like, great, that's not... You can have your apologetics dialed and your arguments for creation, the resurrection of Jesus, but most people, it's not evidence. They just want something that works for them. It's like, that's cool you have your evidence. Great, that's works. That doesn't work for me. That doesn't resonate. It's like if Jesus in the Bible is working for you, great. For me, like morning surf and and then... And drinks with friends on the weekends and a, and a hike. That's, I, I got it. I, that work, that's what's working for me. Um, most people in our city, the idea of some good and loving authority who made the world and filled history with evidence of his love through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The, most of our city is like, that's awesome for you guys. You, you're in a cool building and that's cool for you. It doesn't resonate. <laughs> that's awesome though. Like, good. That's the idea today. Um, And because the reason is because in 2022, our ultimate authority is whatever works. Because my God is really self. And and it's just the air we breathe. Which means we have we have to respond to one big question. If you're Christian, you have to answer for something. And all the pressure is on you to answer this question, and it's this: why do Jesus followers submit to the Bible's authority? This is strange. Do you ever put yourself in the shoes of people like far from God? This is weird, you guys. Our culture loves Jesus, not in the sense of obeys him, but just super interested in him. We like him. Every, all year long, it seems like there's magazine articles about Jesus in Vons, you know, everybody. Apparently they're selling, you know, everybody's fascinated by Jesus, and, and but when it comes to the bible people are like that's great you follow jesus and it works but are you really like you know how old those books are and how many people those books have hurt that's the idea at least and if i joined the church i'd come under that those same books like is, are you for real like i just am curious <laughs> have you ever heard this pushback totally understandable. If, if you haven't heard this pushback, then I'd encourage you to talk to, you know, <laughs> some people that are far from God, because they'll give it to you, and it, it'll actually enrich you. You'll come alive a little bit. You're like, oh, wow, I am weird. <laughs> totally. That feels so strange. And a lot of this pushback, it is, it's very justified, isn't it? We, it's understandable. It comes from very real abuses of the Bible. I like to use the knife, the knife analogy. Knives are life-saving, right? Cooking, wilderness survival, surgery. There's so many life-giving uses for this sharp object we call the knife in English. If someone abuses a knife to hurt people, even if it's an accident, what do you do? You don't get rid of all knives. You punish the abuser and correct your knife use. This is what you do with the knife. Um, There's plenty of uses for sharp objects. Uh, The same goes for for the Bible and Bible abuse. So church family, can I speak very clearly, very bluntly? If we want to have helpful, safe conversations about Jesus with people who are far from God, we got to be honest about Bible abuse. How people have misuse the Bible to justify harming other people in God's name, misogyny, the subjugation of women, homophobia, slavery, oppression, literal killing, all in the name of submitting to authority in the Bible. It doesn't mean the Bible's bad at all. It means Bible abusers stand condemned. And we need to humbly correct. We need to adjust But even after we get all that straight, even if we even after we understand, you know, Bible's not bad. Abuse of Bible is bad. It's still weird. You know, you you talk to your coworkers, ask them like, "Hey, honest feedback time." I live under the authority of three thousand year old books to guide me. What do you? From zero to weirdo. What do you think? Honestly, (laughs) just give them just give them that question, and and let the conversation flow. It's very strange. Who else does this? Uh, followers of Jesus do this. We do this. So, um, so maybe you're still wondering about the authority question. You're like, great, I get it. I'll talk to my friends. But Paul carries Jesus's authority? How? And that's still fuzzy for you. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. I like the metaphor of sheriffs and deputies. And it's, it's kind of just, but it helps. Sheriffs and deputies. What's the difference between a sheriff and a sheriff deputy? Anybody know? First off, if if I'm not mistaken, I'm no, you know, law enforcement expert, but uh, there's only one sheriff. There's only one sheriff in town, you know, and that, that applies to every county. That's actually true. There's only one sheriff in San Diego County. You know what his name is? Anybody? I know it because I Googled it last night. It says, meet the sheriff, and I clicked it, and I did. I met him. Do you know his name? His name is William D. Gore. He's the San Diego County Sheriff. There's only one. So, as far as I understand, that's that's how every county is, too. The one sheriff is the head of the whole department with the unique role of, of admin, managing. And he's unique in that way, or she, if she's a woman. Can you guess how many sheriff deputies are in San Diego County? How many deputies? One sheriff, how many deputies? This is a party game. You guess the jelly beans, you get. Matt has a prize for you. Just kidding. But it's over 4,000. Over 4,000 deputies in San Diego County. Uh, they're not all patrolling in the same way, but they're considered deputized. So, um, according to the dictionary, Merriam Webster dictionary, those 4,000 deputies. Um, the definition is appointed as a substitute with power to act like a sheriff. Appointed as a substitute with power to act. So the sheriff uniquely authorizes with the badge his deputies to speak and act as though they are him. His own authority in, on I-5 or I-15. And, and that's, and, and by the way, that's exactly what we expect, right? We drive down, <laughs> we, we drive down the freeway, we put ease on the brake if we're going over whatever because we see we're like oh that person has sheriff it says sheriff they must be the sheriff we expect them to act like a sheriff even though chances are one in four thousand it's the sheriff um we see the badge and the uniform and the car with the lights and we respond accordingly as though it's William D. Gore in that car (laughs) does this mean the sheriff does this mean William D. Gore is like puppeting all of the sheriffs and controlling them and speaking through them, literally. No. The deputies are acting and thinking for themselves, making decisions on their own. Uh, but there's this expectation that we share that these deputies carry the influence of William D. Gore and can do just what he would do. And, and similarly, within the deputy department, they, they expect this too, they expect us to respond as if they are Gore. They walk up to you as if they're William Gore, you know. Um, So this is a helpful metaphor for Jesus and his apostles. There's only one Messiah managing the universe, but he's deputized certain people called apostles to wear his badge around around town. And so if the San Diego sheriff has 4,000 deputies, how many deputies does the Messiah have? Do you know? At least 12. Most of whom, about eight at least, are credited with writing the New Testament. Not all Christians are deputies. Not not all Christians walk around speaking with the authority of Jesus all the time when they write to the church. Understand. The rest of the church are citizens of the county, expected to respond accordingly as though... This apostle is deputized by the Messiah himself. So this is why Acts 2 has no problem saying that the church was built on the apostles' teaching. Because the apostles' teaching... Wait, I thought Jesus was our teacher. Is the church built on Jesus' teaching or the apostles' teaching? What's the answer? Yes. Are we built on Jesus' teaching or the apostles' teaching? The answer is yep, 100%. Exactly. Exactly because they're deputized by Jesus. So when we read Paul to Galatia, he's not parroting Jesus. It's not like Paul is Jesus's meat puppet, that he's just like puppeting to Galatia. No, this is Paul, slide 12 here, this is Paul writing with his own mind and emotions and anger and passion, and at the top of the document is the stamp, boom, from the Messiah's office. This is how Paul's words become divine scripture with Jesus' power to shape you and to shape communities. And did you know, even the apostles viewed each other in this way. There's this kind of hilarious text that Peter writes about Paul's writings. Maybe you know the one I'm talking about. Here it is on the screen. Peter writes this about what Paul writes. He says, Our dear brother Paul also wrote to you, also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him putting himself with Paul, and he says this, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. (laughs) I really like that. Amen, Peter. I agree. Paul's tough. Um, But he also says, ignorant and unstable people distort Paul, which is still happening today. As they do the other, what? Wait a minute. So, so Peter knew that Paul was writing the scriptures in his lifetime. Peter knew that Paul's letters were Bible on with Genesis and with Psalms. That's amazing, you guys. What does this mean? If, if these were just Paul's words with no Jesus badge... Then Galatians would be this cool old ancient letter in a museum from a dead guy who loved Jesus, but we can disagree with him. We don't get to disagree with him. We don't get to disagree with Paul. Why? If Peter thought Paul wrote the Bible and carried Jesus' badge, how much more do we? So if this is true, and you come to this book, You're coming to something that uniquely carries the weight of Jesus's own will to you. This is profoundly beautiful. This is a beautiful invitation. If these books have Jesus's stamp, then suddenly followers of Jesus are interested. This is not just a museum document with good advice. No, no, we pay close attention. Why? Because if this is true, then what Paul wanted to say to Galatia and Ephesus and Rome and Corinth, what Paul wanted to say, it was what this good and kind and healing king wanted to say. And if he wanted to say something, then that's really good news for every citizen of the kingdom. Because we trust the character of the king. Trusting in the Bible means trusting the good character of the king. We don't trust the king because of this book primarily. We trust this book because of the character of the king who authorizes it to us. And this is where we start to answer the question about authority. It's a big question, but but so why? Why do we follow Jesus and submit to the authority of Paul? Because here's why you guys, there is nothing that we want more than to shape our lives and our homes and our relationships, shape them around this good, kind, healing king. His words bring us healing. Even when we think we know what's best for us, and when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, and we're afraid, and we run to, we're tempted to run to other sources of authority in our fear. Jesus' followers trust that Jesus' authority is the very def- definition of goodness and life. And we're standing with billions of others when we do this. Brothers and sisters across San Diego and the world and throughout time believing Jesus' authority comes to us first and foremost through the scriptures. His authority comes to us and it shapes us for good, always for good, even when it doesn't make sense. This is how we follow Jesus into what Jesus calls life to the full through bringing our lives under the authority of the Bible. So what does this mean? You know, what does it look like to bring your life under the authority of the Bible? What does that even look like? Well, first of all, it, looks like, it, means, it means that we, we let the Bible call out our gods. What are your gods? Uh, <clears throat> another way of asking that, our gods are the people or systems that we trust when we're scared What are the people or systems that we trust to save us from what we're afraid of? What do you run to? Coping mechanisms. Again, tribal echo chambers. Maybe you run to your bank account and in your panic attack, you figure out how can I, oh my gosh, I'm going to die if I don't change my button. you? put all your weight in and all your anxiety is resting on whether you can arrange your bank account differently. Or sex. Race. Nationalism. Self-love. These are things we run to. We can run to these things and these systems in hope that they'll deliver us when we're scared. Notice Is there anything inherently wrong with money or sex or ethnicity or being part of a tribe if that tribe is truly a healthy place to exist? Remember, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be tribes around the Lamb. There will be tribes in heaven. Different cultures are represented there. But when that culture, when that tribe becomes, you have to become like us to belong, Suddenly you have this nationalism thing. Self-love is one we've talked about already. All of these things have healthy expressions in Jesus. If we submit them under the Bible and let the Bible tell us how these things are supposed to work. That's what it means to submit your life to the Bible. Let the Bible inform how to view money and sex and ethnicity And nationalism and yourself, your self worth. This is why we bring ourselves under the scriptures. This is why we introduced the idea of a rule of life. You guys, if you're here in the fall, we did our future church series and we we began talking about a rule of life, a way that Park Hill Church will walk forward together, practicing the way of Jesus. And one of them is daily Bible reading. Amongst other things, silence and solitude and Sabbath and generosity and hospitality. One of them is daily Bible reading, both individually and right here in community. And you take these things. If you have questions, hopefully we ask stimulating questions that will be on the discussion guides for your community groups. It's a big part of community that you wrestle through this thing and together as a family. If you're not in one, get in one. If you have questions from Sunday, bring them to your community leader. Bring them in a context of shared meal and prayer. This is actually what the Bible was always designed to be, a community book. And, and, and we read it together knowing we're probably always at least 10% wrong in what we're thinking, right? We're always at least, I, I, I remember N.T. Wright, one of the greatest scholars of all time. When I heard him say this, I'm like, whoa. He said, I'm, I know at any given time, I'm only 80% right and 20% wrong. The problem is I can never know which 20% it is. He said, that's called humility, basic humility. And if we can all have that, about everything together, I think we'll grow in, in, in our understanding of loving God and others. This is how we thrive under the Bible's authority. This is how. Again, we all have stories of authority abuse that we can talk about, or God forbid, authority abuse you've experienced, God forbid. In which case, as a leader, hear it, as a leader, I I want to extend to you just my my grief and compassion and say, I'm so sorry you were wounded by church leaders, if that's your story. When spiritual authority ends up abusing people under the authority, that's where some of the deepest, most profound wounding happens. Because spiritual abuse, it it, it, it manipulates people in God's name, which profoundly perverts people's image of God's character in the wounded person. If that remotely describes your experience today, then listen, my great joy would be that this community would be a place of genuine truth-telling for you where you tell the truth, you name your experience in in a safe context of listening and trust and we cry together and find emotional healing by the power of the Spirit around the table of Jesus. This is my great joy if this would take place for all who are wounded in the name of God. So, we're well aware of authority abuse. Listen, but the fact that authority abuse exists, it makes the real thing all the sweeter. We long for the real thing. We've seen it abused. We want the real thing of God's authority. So, may this be a community where we can, we can taste and see the sweetness of deep healing from coming under the Bible so that we can say, like David, uh, slide 15, we can say, look what he says about the Bible, about the words. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. May this be a place that we're like, oh my gosh, I I feel that longing. I, I have that craving again. Or maybe for the first time, God wants to restore that joy in many of you. Maybe it's been a while since you've consistently read the Bible. For whatever reason, there's just a wall, a block. God wants to remove that block. Whatever's keeping you from relationship with him through, through his authorized covenant-loving documents, there's, something, there's been something blocking you today, he wants to remove it, or over the next couple weeks in your community, he wants to remove it, he wants to heal that, that and bridge that. Will you let him do this? Will you allow Jesus to restore hunger in you again and pleasure and delight for his goodness to cover your life? We're talking about the authority of the Bible, you guys. So when I say, yes, I live under the Bible's authority, what I'm saying is I live under the authority of Jesus and I'm happy there. This is where I find what Jesus promised, life to the full. This is it. I long for it. Jesus' love is expressed here. I experience it here, under the authority of the Bible. All these stories from Genesis through Deuteronomy of God delivering a people, and then Joshua of him bringing them into where he promised them to be. To be. And then all through the Kings and all through the Psalms, God was building this story where you and I would be, step into the story. The, the pastor who just passed away, at Maranatha Chapel, uh, Ray Bentley, who just died, we, we went to his memorial on Friday. And his big quote, everybody kept quoting, is his favorite line, His invitation for his church, the the invitation he grew his giant community based on was, was this statement, just step into the story, you guys. Step into the story. He had this whole thing about stepping in because this story is a story of God covenanting his love to you. And that covenant is created through these documents and we say yes to it by receiving them over us. It's like, The last thing I'll say, it's like my marriage to Sandy. We are married, and there was a covenant document created, right? Um, It's been a while since I've read it for my devotions, my wedding certificate, but uh, I've never done that. (laughs) But it was created because there was this, I will be this. I will be this thing for you, and it's like, all right, I believe you, and I'll be this. I will be for you, my body, my mind, my soul for you. And then there was evidence of it through, through, through a document. This is what the Bible is. Just like my marriage covenant terms with Sandy, though, it's not always easy to, to, to live <laughs> what I promised. It's not always easy to, yeah, I'll have you, hold you, be faithful, sickness, health, death to us part. I'm going to do it. I will do it. Just like the children of Israel on the mountain. We're going to do this for God. I say that to Sandy on the altar. I, I, I have repented you know for thousands of times of uh, for not living up to the document and the statement and this is what we're invited into is that's why we come to the table this is us renewing our vow oh my goodness god has never needed to repent <laughs> he's never needed to tweak his trajectory he's always been dead set on me and being faithful i just have been moving but I come back under the authority of Jesus and I'm saying so at the table. This is why we're doing it. Baptism is the beginning. Communion is the renewal of vow all the way through. And the Bible is, yes, we agree. And I'm reminding myself that we agree. And I'm reminding myself that you're inviting me into your story that's about you, not me. And as we do that, our life starts to become what Jesus called to the full. Are you willing To come under Paul and to come under John and Peter and Matthew. And it will not always make sense. The Bible is bizarre. And we'll get into all that on another day, I'm sure. But come under it, wrestle through it in community. This is what it means for us to rediscover what it means to be human. So your coworkers are like, really? Maybe, you, maybe somehow they come across this podcast, you're like, hey, this is what our church thinks about the Bible. And they're just like, but really? And it's like, yeah, but the only response after all this is like, what other authority is there? Whose authority do you want to live under? Your own? How's that working for you? We have the privilege of coming under the goodness and influence of a person who has the experience of what it means to be a human and to suffer. Someone I actually want to be like. Who doesn't want to be like Jesus? We have the privilege of coming under his influence. To be made like him as individuals and as his family. And that means coming under the authority of the scriptures. I'm gonna pray for us that this would become reality, that we would let the Holy Spirit remove those blockages. Maybe it is confessing or naming a pain point around church or around authority. God wants to heal those pain points, not glaze or gloss them over, but to help you name them and truth tell and let the community come around you in comfort and cleansing so that once again, the influence of Jesus is something you can say, this is so sweet to my taste. So Holy Spirit, Make it so. Make it so. As we end with the bread and the cup of Jesus, renew our passion and zeal for your word. May we say with the psalmist, this, this stuff is honey. This is delightful.